You are listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. and welcome back to the Varmints Podcast. Every week we do a whole bunch of research to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet one animal at a time. For the next few weeks, our fearless leader, Paul Chomo, is on a sort of sabbatical from the show. And in the meantime, the indie pod community stepped in like the total bosses that they are. And we have a lot of amazing guests for you to listen to all summer long. Paul and I would just like to say we're completely overwhelmed and grateful for the amount of encouragement, support, and just plain love we've gotten from our community. You guys are rock stars, so let's get on with the learning about animals. I'm Donna, and I'm not an animal expert. And I'm Susie Buttress, and I'm a bird fan, but I'm also not an animal expert. And today, <laughs> yes, <laughs> today we're talking about hummingbirds. We are indeed. We're going to talk about those hummingbirds. But first, the news. A hummingbird wound up at a Virginia fire station showing signs of heat exhaustion and was treated by Virginia firefighters with sugar water. (laughs) There's not much to this article, but there's extremely cute pictures of the firemen syringe feeding this tiny hummingbird with some sugar water to make sure that he feels better <laughs> and they said uh, he had pr- he was just a tired just tired weak lethargic hummingbird and he drank the fluid then took a short rest 
and flew the coop. <laughs> so cute. So this isn't an earth-shattering news item, but it was the only thing I could find about hummingbirds, and it's adorable. Look at that little guy eating his sugar water. It's so well, cute. <laughs> I just want to say a big, big round of applause to the Fairfax County Fire and Rescue Department for uh, taking the time to look after this uh, little hummingbird and how lucky that they had a, a reasonable receptacle, that syringe, for feeding the sugar water. But well done, yes. little one. Yes, that was really cool. Um, we'll put a link to that in our show notes, of course, because it's adorable and so cute. Oh, boy. We has the dumb we cannot brain. <laughs> On our last episode of the Jellyfish, guys, we misquoted our Rugrat, which was terrible. She was actually Chris Brayton from the More Gooder Than podcast, little girl. And Paul wants to make sure that you understand it's his fault, although I think it's probably also my fault. So, sorry guys, we will be sending you a card and some stickers, and we promise we will not fail you again. So, just a reminder, go to BlazingCaribouStudios.com for links to our audio and our show notes for today's episode. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at at varmintspodcast, all one word, and at varmintspodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. We have a Pinterest board that I manage for every animal, and the link to that is at the bottom of our show notes. If you want a t-shirt and all that kind of stuff... Just put varmints into the search engine at tpublic.com and you can get all kinds of cool stuff over there. And if you like the show, why not tell a friend about it and introduce them to the podcast? We're everywhere that podcasts are found and word of mouth is the very best way to help us grow. So if you love us, tell everyone. Tell everybody you know and make them learn how to listen to podcasts. All right, so now it's time to learn about these hummingbirds. Hey, let's go get educated on some animals. I know you wanna. <laughs> All right, hummingbirds belong to the avian family Trochilidae, and their closest relatives are the equally fascinating Swifts. I have never seen a swift, I don't think. What is oh, a swift? It's a small flying bird like a mountain or a swallow, but it has very long wings, very dart-like when it's flying, and they, they fly very high up, eating insects and screeching. See? Now, yeah, there was a reason that I had a bird person on this show, I'm just saying. So, you know, I know nothing about birds. <laughs> so hummingbirds are tiny. They weigh 2 to 20 grams, which is... A fraction of an ounce to slightly less than an ounce. (laughs) They have long, narrow bills and small, saber-like wings. Males, and sometimes females, have a colorful gorget, a small, stiff, highly reflective colored feathers on their throat and upper chest section. Their shiny feathers and the others around the head may look sooty black until they turn their heads to catch the sun and display the intense metallic spectral color. They are the bird with the tiniest egg. It makes sense that the smallest bird comes from the smallest eggs, but how small? The one to two eggs in a ruby-throated hummingbird clutch are about as tiny as peas and are placed 
in a walnut shell-sized cup woven from spiderwebs and plant material. It's like a fairy garden story animal, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, and that, that I'll come on to that in the pop culture section later. I'm excited to hear it. Hummingbirds fall asleep on the job. They are one of the few groups of birds that are known to go into a state known as torpor. This is how they get through the night. It's a very deep, sleep-like state in which metabolic functions are slowed to a minimum and a very low body temperature is maintained. If it lasted for long periods, we'd call it hibernation, but hummingbirds go into torpor any night of the year when the temperature and food conditions demand it. So they're the masters of torpor because they have to be. Their feathers offer poor insulation and they have really high metabolic demands. Torpor allows them to check out physiologically when they can't maintain their normal 105 degrees Fahrenheit body temperature, and that's about 40 degrees Celsius. So, wow, that's high. Little tiny little heater. Yeah, that's that's more than humans, isn't it? Yeah, quite a bit more, yeah. The almost 340 species of hummingbirds are entirely restricted to the New World, where they can be found from Tierra del Fuego to southern Alaska, which is shocking to me. Alaska, really? And from below sea level deserts to steamy tropical forests at elevations of up to 16,000 feet in the Andes of South America. Wow. Most of this species live in the tropics, and while 17 species regularly nest in the United States, many of these are found close to the Mexican border. We have 11 species of hummingbirds in Colorado. I checked. <laughs> <laughs> Most areas in the U.S. have one or two breeding species, and only the ruby-throated hummingbird nests east of the Mississippi. So, their high-energy lifestyle compels hummingbirds to locate reliable food sources. Feeding on flowers puts them at the mercy of flowering seasons and the plants on which they depend, and we're not going to talk too much about that because you're going to talk about that a yep. little bit. So, and then the other thing I wanted to say about their feeding is that babies are totally silent, hummingbird babies. They wait to feel mom's touch to beg for food, and then they do so completely silently, which I think is amazing. That's really interesting, yeah. Hummingbirds are, for the most part, pretty unsociable. In fact, they get the adjectives pugnacious and feisty when people are writing about them a lot. When more than one humming is around, it's often a scene of repeated high-speed chases. And in fact, male and female hummingbirds do not form a pair bond after mating, and the female is left to care for the eggs and chicks alone. Hummingbirds do not need the help of other hummingbirds to locate food or to fend off predators. Other hummingbirds are competitors for the flower nectar, and the help that a male might provide a female doesn't outweigh the burden of having a male around competing for food. Yeah, so... Get out of here. Get away from my food. So what's all the fighting about? It's because plants take time to secrete nectar into their flowers, and they have specific flowers that they feed on a lot of the time. So I think well, that's their territory. And they have small territories around their favorite flower patch, and they do so even during brief stopovers for refueling during migration. It kind of sounds like their territory is in their minds wherever they are at the time. They're like, this is my area. <laughs> yeah, I was recently in California and um, very, very keen to see hummingbirds because I, I love seeing them. And we, as you said earlier, we don't have them in the UK. And yeah. uh, 
I was watching some Orioles, which again was a first for me, and out of nowhere, a hummingbird started chasing them off, so they were clearly all going for the same nectar-producing plants. I had no idea that a tiny, tiny hummingbird would chase off a larger Oriole, and yet it did, so it was really interesting. Yeah, I wonder if that's because of the thing that I'm going to mention next, which is that... Interestingly, the large species of hummers don't seem to recognize the tiny micro hummers as birds. They don't seem to recognize them as competitors because they won't chase them off. They'll let them feed from the same flowers. And some biologists think that this is because they might see them as insects. And because an insect sting can kill a hummingbird, they just avoid them and they don't confront them at all. They just let them do whatever they want. So. That's sort of interesting, so I wonder if the Orioles thought that the Hummers were insects, (laughs) if they even recognized them as birds. Well, I think they may have chosen to ignore the hummingbirds if the hummingbirds hadn't been chasing after them. It was a very directed attack, so I guess anything chasing you, you you get out of there. Yeah, Um, that's true, that's true, but still they're so big compared to them that's that's what shocked me yeah seeing a hummingbird chasing an oriole so um yeah Yeah. i totally understand them being territorial yep yep well there is so much information about hummies we can't cover it all in one show it's just impossible so make sure you check out the documentary i'm going to link in the show notes it is from nat geo wild and it's called hummingbirds jeweled messengers with sir david attenborough And it is amazing. You'll learn a ton and your mind will be blown. So let's talk about their feeding. So hummingbirds feeding. So they drink nectar using their tongues. And the tongues are so long that this was amazing. Their tongues are so long that when they're retracted, they coil up inside the bird's head around their skulls and eyes. So it's such a long tongue. And, and sometimes when you see them, you know, you can see the tongue sticking out of the beak. But to think that it retracts all the way up around their eyes into their skull. Oh, that's a little bit freaky. Their bodies are so small, though. So you would think, like, where else are they going to put it, really? You know? I, I guess their tongue is a little bit like one of those party streamers that you blow and uncurls and then rolls back up. But in reverse, because the coily bit is inside the head. At its tip, the tongue divides into two, and it was originally thought that the the tongues gathered nectar through capillary action, which is where a very thin tube will, by, by the wonder of physics, will draw liquid into it. But it's not like that. These tubes don't close up, so the birds can't suck on them as if they were straws. Right. So they thought it was capillary action, but now they know that it's something about the way the tongue is shaped. In the 80s, a scientist, Margaret Rebega, was looking into the capillary action thoughts and looked very carefully at hummingbird tongues. And if it was capillary action, because it's aided by gravity, the birds should find it easier to drink from downward point in flowers. But they don't. Right. So, And it's also quite slow for thicker liquids. So hummingbirds should then ignore super sweet nectar because it's too syrupy and it wouldn't flow up using capillary action but they don't they love the super sweet nectar so the scientist realized that actually all these people that had thought it was capillary action must be wrong so she looked into it really carefully and she found that through various methods of checking this that actually using fake blooms and and training birds to visit them they found that actually the 
as the t- bird sticks its tongue out, it uses its beak to compress the tu- two tubes at the tip, squeezing them flat. That momentarily holds the nectar in there so they can then pull it back into their mouth to take the nectar. So it's actually kind of like a spring that springs shut over the nectar and pulls it back in, not the capillary action that they first thought it was. So Wow, that's amazing. I thought that was really fascinating, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. There's a video on the page where Susie found this stuff that we're going to put in the show notes for you guys, and it's incredible to watch the little tongue flicking out. You can see exactly the action that she's talking about, and it's amazing. So <laughs> they're, they're really little powerhouses of just amazing facts and amazing physics all in one little bird. Yeah, they are really fascinating. I just can't believe there's so much that's novel about them compared to other animals it's a really interesting little package of evolutionary stuff going on there well that's really cool and i like that how science works how people think they're like well we think it must be this and then they do some studies and find out nope it's not this it's that which is amazing absolutely that's really cool so hummingbirds fly differently than other birds There are a number of flightless birds, and most birds are pretty adept at flying, and they have specialized wing shapes and physical adaptations that make them better flyers, like vultures have broad wings for soaring, and falcons have pointed wings, and then there are rounded wings of silently hunting owls. Hummingbirds have unique flight abilities in comparison to other birds. They are able to fly not only forward, but also they can fly backwards and sideways and straight up. They're the hovercraft of the bird kingdom. (laughs) They can hover a lot, much longer than short-term hovering birds like ospreys, kestrels, and kingfishers, and a few other species. They can even do acrobatics such as backward somersaults, and they dart among flowers searching for nectar and insects. And you should see, they didn't think that they did mating dances for a really long time because they can't see them, and that's the thing. You just can't see what it's doing. The human eye can't track it. But once we could take a film of something and slow it down, you can see that the males do do mating dances. They do these complex aerial mating dances for the female. And (laughs) you'll see some of that in the documentary. It's really amazing. So how do they do this? We use high-speed filming today and advanced techniques like that to analyze their air currents around the hummingbird wings, and so now we understand better how they do all of this. First of all, they, you know, their small size allows them to do different aerial things than other animals, and that's, you know, probably, maybe that seems a little bit obvious, but they have other adaptations that are crazy. Like all birds, they have hollow bones. They have fused vertebrae and fused pelvic bones to eliminate excess muscles and ligaments to lighten their weight without sacrificing the support that protects the internal organs. Their proportionally larger pectoral muscles on their chest are responsible for moving their wings, and their pectoral muscles account for more than 25% of its body weight, a higher percentage than any bird species. They have tiny feet to reduce aerodynamic drag and flight, and they drop even more weight because they can't walk or hop. They can only perch or slightly scoot around sideways. 
They have longer, stronger bones in the finger portion of their wing to keep the wing stable with each stroke and to allow greater fine movements of control in any direction. So they have the highest oxygen demand of all vertebrates and their wings beat as many times as 80 times per second. Can you believe that? 80 times in one second. I can't comprehend the speed of that. It's incredible. And when they are perched, their heartbeat is around 400 times a minute. But when they're in flight, it rises to 1,200 beats per minute. And as the heart pumps oxygen-rich blood to the wing muscles, even that's not enough for hovering. So their heart expands in size so that it can pump more blood with each beat. And when this happens, the blood circulates around the whole body, heart to lungs, heart to muscles, and back in under one second. It's incredible. Like, yeah, I just don't. I can hardly comprehend wrapping my brain around that. It's incredible. So most birds fly with upstrokes and downstrokes, generating all of their lift and power on the downstroke of each wing beat. But hummingbirds stroke their wings forward and backward, pivoting up to 180 degrees from the shoulder to locate rotate that wing. So that's how they generate that, that power. With the wingtip tracing a horizontal figure eight in the air, each wing beat, it generates lift on forward and backward strokes, keeping the bird aloft and allowing it to hover. And a minute twist can change the angle of the wing and the influence of the flight direction, allowing the bird to change direction instantly, no matter which way the wing is stroking. This type of flight control is more closely associated with insects, such as dragonflies, than with birds. It's a unique adaptation that the hummingbird has harnessed for efficient flight. Ornithologists may have deciphered the gross mechanics for hummingbird flight, but much more research is needed to fully understand these birds' unique abilities. New research techniques involving ultraviolet light, wind tunnels, and other technology are continually improving our understanding of how hummingbirds fly. Um, I, I think one question that people will have is why do people study this kind of stuff? Other than the fact that it's just super interesting, all of this knowledge about aerodynamics can affect what we do with future technology. There are already little robot hummingbirds that they use to test both hummingbird behavior and to understand the physics of what's going on there. So it could, who knows, it could apply to drone technology at some point in the future. You just never know. So <laughs> Little drone hummers are, around. That gives a whole new meaning to the hummer, doesn't it? And would there be stretch hummers as well? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was quite interesting. So they, they are little flying crazy flyers. They're so cute. I cannot believe how cool they are. They're just way cooler than I ever even imagined. So again, definitely watch the documentary because it is fantastic. Disclaimer time. The Vomits Podcast knows it's not fair to compare animal intelligence to human intelligence. But then, Donna and Paul only have the yardstick of themselves. So they're going to do it anyway. All right, what do you think about their intelligence? On a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give them? Unfortunately, I think I'd have to give them quite a low intelligence rating because they don't necessarily... They have to figure out enough to survive to avoid predators, but I don't know that they could solve any tasks. 
So I'm thinking possibly three if I was pushing it, but it's probably more like a two, that they respond to stimuli. They're, They're obviously a very efficient kind of feeding and mating and producing little hummers machines but um (laughs) but i don't know that they're anywhere on the scale near like ravens or crows and the sort of things they can work out right i agree with you i think that they i mean i'm sort of i feel like their onboard intelligence is pretty good for a bird because they can remember which flowers they've visited even in situations where there are hundreds of them, like on a tree that has clusters of tiny flowers, if they're feeding from there, they can remember every single little minute cluster, individual flower of that cluster that they've been to. Okay. And you were talking about how scientists for the study, for the the tongue study, actually trained them to do certain behaviors so they do have a certain amount of trainability which again that's is not fair intelligence yes really. yeah no, but that's um, fair. yeah so but on the other hand like i said they don't seem to recognize small hummingbirds as hummingbirds so <laughs> i'm not sure where they would land but i'm i'm sort of willing to give them like a four because of their ability to remember things so well as far as their food is concerned and they do use the currents of air to migrate across the Gulf of Mexico, a few species. So that, again, it's not a sign of like huge problem-solving ability, but they do seem to be pretty smart for birds, especially the kind of bird they are. So I think I'd stick them around. I might be willing to give them as much as a four. Okay. Bearing uh, in mind, it's completely yeah. subjective. No, and, and that's fair. And, and, you know, thinking about it, you mentioned about how they've extended their range. They've gone up to Alaska. They've, they've, they've found over 16,000 feet. So they've clearly got a kind of wanderlust, lust, sorry, a wanderlust where they want to extend their range and look for other opportunities. And, you know, who would have thought that hummingbirds would be found in those locations? So they explore and they adapt to those um, those areas too so yeah you know I think that's fair that about the trainability that's definitely definitely something that adds to the intelligence scale yeah a little bit but I think you're right that they're not pl- they're not problem solvers you can't put a novel situation in front of them and expect them to know or to be able to figure it out they're just not built for that so to be fair everything that one that was yeah. rescued by the the firefighters did work out that it could eat it could drink nectar from a syringe and that doesn't look like a flower so Maybe they do have a little bit of problem solving. Maybe they do, but maybe he could just smell the sugar and That's was true. like, put my nose in it, put my face in it. Here's my tongue, let yeah. me squeeze some nectar into my mouth. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's go to a commercial, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about pop culture, what little there is. Do you like movies? Get busy living, or get busy dying. Mr. Anders. Life, uh, finds a way. TV? A girl has no name. Soft kitty, warm kitty. You didn't think I'd just disappear, did you? Music? Hello. All my friends are eating steak, it's slow. Video games? It's me, Mario. Get over here! If you love geeking out about your pop culture passions, See Here's the Thing may be the podcast for you. 
Join me and my co-host Patrick as we dive into a weekly digest of news clips about movies, TV, video games, theater, and more. Special guests, improv games, and terrible celebrity impersonations abound in our weekly episodes published directly on Podomatic. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Google+, and Pinterest. See, here's the thing. It's where humor and pop culture collide. Hey there, everyone. Paul and Don are a couple of nerds just like you. And they don't get to see animals up close and in person very often. So let's talk about where we all see them most of the time. On movies, TV, comic books, toys and video games. All right, so what did you find for Hummingbird Pop Culture? So there's not a great deal. I, I did look quite hard for this. It is a very popular bird and, and one that people adore. When you talk about pop culture or when I talk about pop culture, I'm mostly thinking of things like cartoons, films, mm-hmm. songs, TV. But actually, the Aztecs were one of the first known cultures to embrace hummingbirds. They wore talismans that had hummingbirds on them as a symbol of the vigor of their people. And so that mm-hmm. has been a symbol of energy in quite a lot of cultures. So, you know, when we talk about popular culture, we may be thinking just in terms of ourselves today, but really we should be thinking about cultures through the ages. The other thing is, I have a personal theory that, yeah. and I, I really researched this because I thought I can't be the only one with this theory. Uh, when, right. I, when I first saw my very first hummingbird, I was shocked at how it moved around. You mentioned about how it flew, how they can uh, stop starting the air, fly backwards, almost do somersaults yeah. or, or even do somersaults. I, in my comprehension of what a hummingbird might be, I knew they probably made a buzzing noise because that's what we all know, they hum. I had no idea they would move around as, as frenetically and then suddenly stop and then shoot off somewhere else. And it immediately made me think of Tinkerbell. Right. And I'm convinced that Tinkerbell is based on a hummingbird. <laughs> but I thought <laughs> there would be lots of theories about this. And I, I haven't found anything. So um, hmm. so I've thrown that out there. I'm, I've, I'm sure. If we can just talk to Walt Disney somehow. Well, I wonder if she's based, I wonder if her movements are based on a hummingbird, you know? It could be, it could be. She's obviously a tiny fairy, but... You know. When I think of her with her wand, especially at the beginning of any Disney film, when she darts off yeah. and then comes back and puts her wand, and the wand almost reminds me of the long hummingbird beak as well. But this is just me. Oh, but actually... No, I don't think you're... <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I mean, fairies are obviously like a whole thing in, in European mythology and folklore. And little tiny sprites, of course, would show up in all sorts of places but as far as how to animate the the motion i would not be at all surprised if the animators when they were doing their research and process of how they were going to make her move that they looked at a hummingbird for that example i wouldn't be surprised at all well when i when i did try putting disney and hummingbirds and tinkerbell into a search engine 
I didn't find Tinkerbell, but I did find that they have that Disney has portrayed hummingbirds in various stories. Um, they're in Cinderella and Pocahontas, and they are usually drawn to the heroine due to her lovely voice. So now, now I'm going to next time I'm in California try that because of course I think I have a lovely voice, and I will I will sing and see <laughs> if I can draw the the hummingbirds to me. Um, ah, well, <laughs> I will teach you how to do that at the end of the show without singing. <laughs> oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, the only other yeah. thing is that uh, hummingbirds are very popular as tattoos and you often find them in designs uh, that people decide to get um, because they they uh, embody the idea of moving quickly and surviving even those small. So they've got um, something that is beautiful and have those strength characteristics too. I think when I do my Pinterest board, I'll put some examples in that w- in there of the hummingbird tattoos. And there's hummingbirds are a very popular subject for artists of all kinds. People love painting them and drawing them, and I can see why because they're colorful and what a challenge, you know. As an artist, I look at that and go, "Oh, how would I do that iridescence? That's mm. so many colors in a tiny area." So, yeah. I'll put some pictures of that in our in our Pinterest board. All right, so like we said, as far as film movies and stuff like that, yeah, I mean, you get your little clusters of birds in the movies and stuff, but there aren't really any characters that are hummingbirds that I could find. So my mind immediately went to this video that's on YouTube that's adorable. It's this man who... He has, he's in Sedona, Arizona, and he feeds the hummies from a little hummy feeder that he hangs outside in his yard. And I'm just going to read the explanation that he has in YouTube directly so you know what happened. We had a hard freeze in Sedona in February of 2011. I had wintering Anna's hummingbirds every year and kept them well fed. To keep their feeders from freezing, I took their feeders in at night and put them out at first light. And as cold as it was, the feeders would start freezing after an hour or so. So I decided to put a feeder on a heating pad. And when I put the food out before first light, my heart sang when I looked out the window and saw Rocky and Adrian, as I named them, actually sitting on the heating pad warming up while they ate. The feeder I'm defrosting in the pictures was outside in the front and not heated and started slushing up, so I swapped feeders out and used a hairdryer with the feeder on the heating pad to speed up the defrosting process. Fearless Rocky came right to the feeder while I was heating it and went right on feeding, even seemingly liking the warm air from the hairdryer. <laughs> what, oh, what an amazing wow. experience and what amazing little birds. The video and all the pictures were taken from the kitchen window. And so cute. So cute. He's got these little hummies sitting on the heating pad. They're like, yum, I'm so warm and happy. (laughs) Have you you also seen those amazing hummingbird videos where people have got uh, several feeders hung up and just hundreds of hummingbirds so even though they're territorial because that's like an only point for food especially if it's in like colder times uh they yeah. all come it's just it's just stunning 
Yeah, it's amazing how they won't fight around the human feeders so much. It's very strange, and I don't know what the explanation for that is. But uh, I have I can ask a friend of mine who feeds hummingbirds in her backyard every year and to see what she has to say about it. Maybe I'll put a commentary in the discussion group later on about that conversation. Uh, so, hey, are you going to eat that? All right, would you eat a hummingbird? Oh, right, well, no, they're so cute. However, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, they do have very large pectoral muscles for allowing them to fly um, and that their breast area is much bigger in proportion to their body than it is for other birds. So yeah. if you were going to eat a hummingbird, I guess that would be the bit you would go for. But come on, guys, they're cute. I know that's not how we should decide whether we're going to eat something because a lot of the animals, we are cute. Um, but it's so <laughs> tiny. Is it worth it? You know, all that feather plucking and no, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to eat it. I wouldn't either. It just seems like a lot of fuss for a really tiny payback. Absolutely. I think you would burn more calories processing the hummingbird than eating the hummingbird. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Let's let's not eat hummingbirds. Yeah, no, I'm not gonna. Nah, no, thank you. Hey, Paul and Donna, it's me, Vlad Somtonovsky. I guarantee you, I can help you win your next trivia night, or at the very least make you the smartest person in the room. All I gotta do is share with you this, the animal fact of the week. Alright, animal facts. Let's talk about more things about this animal. So one thing you mentioned earlier was um, the gorgets. Now, I I thought this was gorget, and um, because that sounds more romantic than gorget, but um, I, I listened to a pronunciation tutorial and the gorgets are, so gorgets are what, um, I'm sorry, I'm just about to giggle because my husband made a, a joke about courgettes and you don't call them courgettes over there, you call them zucchini. And yeah. as I was pronouncing them and saying, so these are called, gorgettes. I know they're called courgettes. <laughs> so my husband said, so are you going to say to American listeners that actually that's really zucchini? So, oh. That's a dad joke. Just ignore it. <laughs> they have okay. zucchinis on their heads. <laughs> but it's the so a gorget is um, the throat armor that an ancient knight would have worn. So if you think of knights of the round table yeah. and the chainmail around their throat, this is what a gorget is. And um, and on hummingbirds, did I pronounce it gorget? I probably yes, did. You did, but that's oh, well. fine because that's how I would have said it because it sounds more. It sounds more eloquent to call it a gorget. I, I actually like gorget. <laughs> it looks French, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. And in my head, I think that's how we should pronounce it. So I'm happy for this show. <laughs> we call them gorget. Um, <laughs> but it's the, it's the absolute stunning, stunning colours that um, hummingbird neck feathers have. And I was really shocked to find out that there's no pigment in the feather making that colour. It's just to do with the sun 
reflecting off the angles of the feathers. There's sort of air bubbles trapped around the feathers and it refracts the light and makes these absolutely stunning colours. The colours show up only in certain angles and if you've ever seen hummingbirds you'll know that sometimes they'll be sitting in one angle and you may only recognise it from its silhouette because it's against a plain background and you can see it. And then as it turns its head and the light catches it, suddenly there's a burst of stunning colour. And I I just find that absolutely amazing. But I guess that's an adaptation that when they want to display to a mate or to fight off another hummingbird, they would use that colour. And I guess there must be a way that they know that they're displaying the colour. But if there were predators around... How wonderful to be able to blend straight away, straight into the background and not show off those colours. That's incredible. But the colours are stunning. And and this particular article that I know we're going to link in the show notes, I just just keep staring at the colours. They're they're sort of such vibrant colours that make you just want to sink into them, especially the blues and the purples, which are my favourite colour for birds anyway. Absolutely beautiful. And also... They birds can see in the UV spectrum, so I wonder what they look like to each other. You know, again, I feel like this is something that um, that warrants more investigation. I I think we're all going to be going away and looking up these links and and reading more about hummingbirds. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you were talking earlier about when you're in California, wanting to see the the hummies and see if you can draw them to you. Well, here's a way that you can draw them to you for sure if they live in your area. And there's an article I'm going to link in our show notes, which is by the Audubon Society. And I'll just kind of briefly tell you what they tell, what they say. They say, in a few easy steps, you can bring these nectar-loving birds to your feeder. So you need to get a feeder. And... This is what they say. You can help these hardworking foragers to get their nutrients by providing them with their favorite post-workout meal, nectar. This hummingbird sweet treat can be made right at home with a few simple ingredients, and by filling your feeder with this DIY delight, you can complement the nectar-rich plants and watch these beautiful little birds feed and flitter all day. And then they have the recipe, which is very short, so I'll just read it. It's a quarter of a cup of refined white sugar. And the editor says, please use refined white sugar. Honey can promote dangerous fungal growth. Organic, natural, and raw sugars contain levels of iron that can be harmful. Plain white table sugar is sucrose, which when mixed with water very closely mimics the chemical composition of natural nectar. So don't be going all... All hippie on us, just use a quarter cup of refined white sugar. It's better for the birdies. One cup of boiling water, a bowl, and a spoon. You don't need to red dye it. They don't care about that. It's all from smell. Mix the sugar in the boiling water until it's dissolved. Cool it off. Fill your feeder. Hang it up outside and wait for the hummies to come. And they will. If you hang them up some nectar, they will show up. I guarantee it. <laughs> if only I could do that here in Hampshire in the UK and they, they would I turn know. up. Aw. But you have lots of sweet little birdies there too. We so. do. And I do Just... try to try to find good in all birds. Yes. But hummingbirds yes. are so sweet and they're so colorful. And they're so cute and tiny and they're just adorable and make me go squee. And you just can't photograph them because they move so quickly and dart here, there and everywhere. They do, but we have a beautiful photograph that you sent me 
And if it's okay, I think we'll use that for the featured image. For oh, the... that would be wonderful. I was so pleased to take okay? that. Yeah, absolutely. I was so pleased to take that. Uh, and when I looked back at it later and then saw that you can even see the hummingbird standing on a flower bloom and making hardly a dent in the flower bloom because it's so light. One thing that I was surprised afterwards to find out was that that particular bird I was hoping to be able to identify as either an Allen's hummingbird or a Rufus hummingbird and um, it's clear that it's a female of the species but apparently those two species are so similar the only way to tell them apart is to see a picture with a fanned tail and notice a particular notch in the feather it's really really difficult to tell them apart so um, yeah so we're not going to know what type of hummingbird is it's going to be an Allen's or a Rufus but we can't say for sure with that one but uh, oh, I was good. so amazed. Okay. To, I also took a little bit of video of it. And if it's good enough, I'll, I'll send it over to you. And if you want to put that on the show notes as well or, or in the on the group, we can post it in the group. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be maybe both. That is awesome. Thank you so much. And we're going to be super happy to use that photo. It's really wonderful. Thank you for that. And thank you for coming on our show. Please tell the listeners about your podcast and where they can find it. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I'm the host of the Casual Birder podcast, and that's a weekly podcast, and it's for people interested in wild birds. I mainly talk about birds that are found in the UK and Europe, but I've been lucky enough, as we've mentioned already, to travel around to America and Canada. And uh, so I, I try to each episode that I'm talking about a bird, I try to include birds from both both sides of the pond really so there's something for everyone and I've also been lucky enough to interview a lot of people with differing interests in birds and so um, sometimes I will intersperse with interviews and so we've got a a range of things but uh, my whole thing is being a casual birder and what that means is enjoying what you're seeing when you're looking outside or when you're on a walk you don't have to do anything big to see birds they're around us all the time and it's just taking those few moments to look out the window or watch when you're walking your dog and just see what birds are there and just learn to enjoy them you can find me anywhere you can download podcasts and i'm also on twitter at casual birder pod and i'm on instagram at casual birder podcast yes and it's a really fun show you guys it's really good and can i say it's family friendly so yes absolutely everyone can listen to it that's right Well, we appreciate you coming and hanging out with us for the Hummingbird Show. That was fabulous. Our show has technical support by Matthew Chomo, bed music by Kevin McLeod, vocal talent by Carrie McGinnis, Chris Brayton, Josh Hallmark, Chris the Toaf Green, Stacy from Rough Giraffe, and Frosty from The Show with Presha and Frosty. We want to also give special thanks to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep this ship afloat. All right, it's time for the Rugrat Corner, guys. If you have a Rugrat that's eight years of age or younger and wants to be on the podcast, send us a message on Facebook or email us at barmanspodcast at gmail.com for details. We make it very easy for you and your Rugrat to hear their voice on the podcast, and we promise we'll say their right names for from now on. <laughs> so for now, we're going to listen to Nano, whose mom is Nikki, and we're going to listen to what he has to say about hummingbirds. I want those. 
Can you send your lap? Sure. This time. Can you tell me about hummingbirds? Uh, the wings go up and down, turn around. Okay. They can fly up, down, backwards, frontwards, up, and down. Oh. <laughs> Do they fly super fast? Yes, because their wings go over a hundred million miles per hour. <laughs> it's so fast. What do they, what do they eat? Flower nectar. Flower nectar. Okay. How do they do that? They, well, they have long no tongue oh. to suck it up. Oh, that makes sense. Do you know any hummingbird jokes? Uh huh. What is, can you tell me? Why why don't I mean why do hummingbirds hum? I don't know why. Mommy. It, no. It's it's recording. Uh cause <sighs> they don't know the words. <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything else about hummingbirds? Um I don't think so. <laughs> oh okay. Then can you say goodbye? Oh, adorable. Bye, this is Farmer's Podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm so going to use that joke. Because <laughs> I don't know the words. That was an awesome joke and an awesome thing. And I really I love the 100 million miles an hour thing. That's awesome. I, I think that's All true. Right. I think that's true. <laughs> All right, everybody. Hey, thanks for that clip, Nikki. That was fabulous. Nano, you are a superstar. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Until next time, be nice to animals. You've been listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios.